Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Brooke Masters. Joining me in the studio is the FT's banking editor, Patrick Jenkins, Charlene Goff, the retail banking correspondent, and Daniel Schaefer, the investment banking correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at HSBC's results, which aren't bad for a bank. Both on the micro and the macro, the kind of message was calm and steadily, steady as she goes, if you like. We'll discuss the likely bailout of Spanish bank Bankia and the ongoing Eurozone crisis. One of the essential things that need to happen for the Eurozone crisis being solved is, is the recapitalization of banks in Spain. And finally, we'll look at the online lender Wonga and its decision to start lending to small businesses. People are using them. I mean, it's just where the small businesses are going to go down that route because it's a bit different to borrow several thousand than a couple of hundred pounds. Let's start with HSBC. Patrick, what do they have to say for us today? Well, as you say, the results for the first quarter aren't bad for a bank. Uh, their underlying pre-tax profit was up uh, 25%, roughly, to close to $7 billion. And, you know, the, the markets responded pretty positively, sending the shares up today. They had some interesting kind of calming messages. I think the kind of key thing that came out of the uh, investor and analyst and uh, journalist calls this morning were the kind of point that Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive, was trying to sound very calm uh, over the issues around the Eurozone. You know, they're quite big in despite being an emerging markets bank they're quite big in some of the uh, the key markets uh in the eurozone notably france where we've obviously just had a new socialist president of the republic uh, elected and uh, he was trying to calm nerves about that he was also trying to calm nerves about the greek situation and saying that he thought the eurozone could withstand a uh, a greek exit from the eurozone so, I mean, I think both on the micro and the macro, the kind of message was calm and steadily, steady as she goes, if you like. Like everybody else, HSBC has a PPI problem. Did they also have to take extra money? Yes, they did. And that was particularly interesting because they also upped their provision in February. So only a couple of months ago. And already they've had to take another hit. And it's a big one this time. It's an extra $500 million. Um, and for HSBC, which was one of the smaller providers of PPI, that's a chunky uplift. Its original provision was only about $700 million. So um, significant increase there um, when you think that Lloyd's, for example, put aside £375 million, but its original provision was £3.2 billion. So HSBC has been hit quite hard by this. Um, I think even only a couple of weeks ago, they weren't intending to make another provision so quickly, but obviously they've seen the other, all of the other banks, bar Santander UK, do it this time around, and they thought, I guess, that they would take a cautious stance. One of the interesting things on that, Charlene, was that they, I think I'm right in saying that HSBC has always kind of argued that they were far less aggressive than any of the other banks, that they'd stopped selling it so early, and that therefore their proportion of um, policies that had been missold and could be eligible for compensation was likely to be less than the other banks. I think they they kind of tacitly acknowledged today that 
the proportion is going to be about the same. Right. Um, that they, you know, maybe were just as aggressive as everybody else. It's just taken a bit <laughs> longer for their realize. customers to wake up to it. Maybe. maybe. Um, do you think there are other lessons we should take from the HSBC results? I think broadly they are, as I say, kind of encouraging. They're probably not representative particularly of the UK banking sector given how much of their business comes from emerging markets, uh, which are largely still booming. There was an interesting blip in, in Brazil where they had to increase their provisions quite uh, significantly. But that, you know, again, Mr. Gulliver was trying to uh, to calm any uh, kind of over-concern about that performance there. Um, and I think probably, you know, with some justification. So read across, I think, you know, we've had the, the kind of steer from Standard Chartered, which um, Charlene uh, wrote about last week. And I think, you know, we get far less detail from Standard Chartered, but it felt like a similar kind of tone from there. Um, so I suppose the more br- the, the kind of broader lessons that we'd be looking at really is, is um, you know, on, on the on the kind of macro picture for Europe. And I suppose, you know, if Mr. Gulliver's right there about things not being a disaster area, then, uh, you know, we should all be a bit heartened. We've also got HSBC's second annual investor day coming up next week. So I think we'll get a bit more detail around some of the intricacies of um, the business, particularly on costs. Analysts are looking for a bit more detail there. HSBC is trying to implement quite a radical cost-cutting structure and get the cost-to-income ratio down. Now, it did made quite good headway on that in the first quarter of the year, but analysts are, are not convinced they can keep that up for the remainder of the year, and, and they think there could be some bad news maybe coming next week on that as Mr Gulliver kind of eases that target a little bit yeah we'll have to see on that they they were very uh reticent to answer too many strategic questions today but one thing they did say and kind of point towards deliberately was they talked about a run rate of annualized cost savings of two billion dollars uh which is kind of extrapolating what they did last year combined with an annualized version of what they did in the first quarter which would suggest that they're pretty confident they can maintain that pace for the rest of the year but um as you say we'll get more detail next week from there, shall we move on to yesterday's events in Spain? While the UK was on bank holiday, the uh, Spanish government decided to have a bank bailout, or it certainly looks like it's headed that way. Patrick, can you tell us what happened with Bankia? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is the bank that was kind of very artificially, very politically knocked together out of seven regional banks about a year ago or, or more, and then controversially floated um, last summer. I say controversially because this was, you know, right in the grip of the Eurozone crisis at a time when Spain actually was at the the, the centre of the storm. Uh, and they, they kind of pressed ahead with this float, mostly getting the money from uh, retail investors in Spain, who arguably were not the best informed to make this uh, decision about whether to uh, whether to invest their life savings in a big bank, which was which is not particularly healthy. But um, yeah, I mean, it's all come home to roost, really. It seems we still got no official statement on this, other than to have been told that the CEO uh, Rodrigo Rato, the former head of the IMF, a former Spanish finance minister who'd been drafted in as a kind of you know political figurehead to run this institution, he has left. He's being replaced by the former head of BBVA, so a commercial banker who you know really should know what he's doing. 
But other than that, we have no details of the, the long-rumoured bailout that we're going to get uh, of Bankia, up to 10 billion euros supposedly being injected in some form, which is why I say the Bankia float was so controversial. Basically, it looks like a lot of those equity investors who only came in last summer uh, could well be wiped out or at least very severely diluted, depending on the form of this injection. We'll probably get more news on it on Friday this week. There's a board meeting of the bank then. And we suspect we'll get we'll get kind of more detail about what kind of bailout to expect. Now, Benki is not actually a household name outside of Spain. And, and other than those very unhappy retail investors, it's not that big a deal. But what's the read across from this kind of sudden collapse of Benkia? Daniel, can you give us a sense of what we should be thinking about for the rest of the Eurozone? I think it, it's sort of, again, make or break time for for, <laughs> for for the Eurozone in the sense that everybody knows the Spanish tier two banks need need some sort of support eventually and and the the the, uh, the banking system there will have to be capitalized and this is one one of the essential things that need to happen for the eurozone crisis being solved this is the recapitalization of of, of, of banks in spain where where they had a, a property bubble bursting and and actually the the level of bad loans as proportion to uh, total lending has risen to the highest level in 18 years so uh, in that sense it might be good news if the Spanish government is willing to do that um, and if they get the backing from the other European governments because the question is whether, whether Spain will, will be able to afford a, a more broader bailout of its banks. I think that's the key question really is Bankia did stand out like a sore thumb in the sense that its woes were that much greater than everybody else's but I think two questions come out of that. One is does Spain have enough resources under its own steam to, to solve this problem central bankers there insist that they can come to some kind of arrangement although it's as i say until until at least until friday we're probably not going to find out what that might be and if they don't uh, have their own resources then you know you kind of spook international investors yet again because uh, everyone's worried about does spain have to go to uh, to brussels to kind of seek some kind of bailout even if it's only targeted at financing a bank refinancing uh, and then the other question is how broad this is in spain um, whether bankia is the only uh, troubled institution and probably well it's not the only troubled institution but it's probably the only big institution that is so troubled so there are a few other little cajas these regional savings banks that um, need to be resolved but i think you know for the time being at least the big players in spain santander and bbva thanks to partly to their international uh, diversification they've got a, a far healthier balance sheet and um profit flow but um you know the trouble is that the longer this uncertainty and lack of clarity goes on uh, the more damaging it is to everybody do you think there's a risk that spain ends up as a much much larger ireland is there enough money um i think ultimately that is the, exactly the danger. And the issue in Ireland uh, was clearly dealt with far, far earlier. You know, it's, uh, it's easy to forget exactly what was, what, was, uh, what was done and when it was done. Um, and Charlene, you, you covered it in great detail. But the, the creation of NAMA as a, as a kind of a public sector bad bank is certainly a model that uh, the Spaniards have looked at, whether this is what they should do. They should put all their bad property um, assets into some kind of centralised institution. But it's amazing that they're only considering that now. Yeah. With a, more than four years on. I yeah. mean, exactly, Ireland did this so quickly. You know, we've had like NAMA 2 already and yeah. that seems like a sort of distant memory, the 
establishment of that. And suddenly we're writing stories saying that Spain are eyeing up the NAMA model. I mean, it's just kind of unbelievable how slow they've been to react. I think the problem was that they they genuinely thought that they could manage their way through this in the in the short term, that it would be a, you know, a one year, two year thing that would bounce, they would bounce back from. And that they're kind of, pretty cautious way of insisting that banks provision for kind of general problems would have been enough to get them through this in these kind of so-called general provisioning requirements which most other banks in other countries don't have as a kind of buffer um, but they just add through it so quickly and weren't able to build them back up again that's been the problem and then the the crisis has gone on far longer than anyone thought it would and you know it seems um that we're almost back to square one in greece to some extent with people now getting concerned today that they won't be able to get the latest tranche of bailout funds yeah i guess it also presages another presumably not very good quarter for for most of the european banks because i mean what we've heard so far already was that april was was a pretty bad month compared to compared to the first quarter which was pretty decent quarter for them yeah and now with um you know the the, the problems we have in spain uh the problems we have in greece and uh the french election outcome which uh which which will leave france in uh, one and a half months of of being in balance again, you know, w- in which we will not see a clear direction because Hollande is he, he will need to uh, display the picture that he's still pushing his election campaign because he's facing another election in France, which is the parliamentary election. So, so he'll he will be torn still between the voters and the markets uh, for for at least another another one and a half months, and that, that that's just not gonna bode well for, for, for markets and for the Eurozone crisis. Yeah, and not least for the, the Franco-German relationship, which is key to resolving the Eurozone yeah, crisis. Yeah, right? indeed. I mean, I think yeah. they'll, they'll, what they'll have to do, Merkel and Hollande, is that they'll, everybody will have to keep the impression that everybody's giving something, um, at least until after the election. Then they're really going to decide on what they're going to do. But until then, the picture will look very difficult still. From that uh, cheerful look forward, we can at least talk about a new business. Wonga, our our new payday lending friend, has uh, entered a new business line. Charlene, you want to tell us about it? Wonga has become quite a familiar brand in the UK in the last year. I mean, largely because it's had this mass scale advertising campaign in London on television channels and it's sponsoring a number of football clubs here. So it's known really as a short term expensive lender. So it's providing loans of anything from a couple of days to a few weeks to people who basically can't get credit anywhere else. So people who you know, have maxed out their credit card or overdraft potentially, and they need some money in the short term. Um, that's that's what Wonga does. As from today, uh, it is offering loans to small businesses, trying to plug that gap that has, you know, it's also uh, banks have pulled away from that area. But it's uh, it's quite a controversial one. And we've had some politicians, uh, consumer groups, uh, the Federation of Small Businesses, who I spoke to yesterday, all expressing concern about um, this development, purely because of the rates that Wonga are charging. I mean, they're so much higher than your regular bank loan, um, up to 2, 2% a week, with a 5% one-off charge on top of that. So What's that add up to? Uh, well, over a year. I mean, the year is the long, the maximum term you can take a loan for. So, mm. And the maximum size is £10,000. 
So I calculated yesterday that that would equate to almost £11,000 in charges on a £10,000 loan. That's a lot of money. It is a, a lot of money. fairly desperate SME to, uh, well, this is to it. go for this. I mean, Wonga's, to give them credit, you know, they've said that they are not trying to provide longer-term credit. They're not trying to fill completely fill the void left by bank lending. What they're trying to do is is solve businesses' immediate cash flow problems. So, for instance, and this is you know increasingly happening in the recession that a, a business a customers have been late paying an invoice or they've been assured that they will get some kind of funding from a bank and it's taken three months rather than two to come through. You know, those kind of short-term issues. The Federation of Small Businesses was saying that actually if, you know, a business was regularly having to turn to something like Wonga, you would ask them to look very carefully at the viability of their business. You wonder, I guess, I mean, this is clearly them taking advantage both of the squeeze of the recession and also the fact that the the big banks are not able to or not willing to extend SME credit and to the level that people want it. I suppose the take-up level at Wonga will give us some sense about whether the perpetual PR battle between the banks who say we will lend to decent SMEs with good business plans and the SMEs who say that the banks are, are charging too much and aren't lending if people really do go to Wonga, that would suggest that the banks really aren't lending. Yes, it would. And, you know, there are benefits. I mean, the big one is that Wonga are promising funds uh, in as little as 15 minutes, you know, from application, it's in your account. You know, the maximum they're saying is 24 hours. So that's vastly different to the banks, which can take weeks, if not months, to process or even approve a loan. So that's what they're selling themselves on. You know, it's going to be quick, it's going to be easy, it's all online, and you'll get the money in your account the same day. Yes, it's expensive, but they see that's a premium service that people will pay for. And if you look at the the experience they've had on consumers, they've done over 4 million loans to date in four years. So people are using them. I mean, it's just where the small businesses are going to go down that route because it's a bit different to borrow several thousand than a couple of hundred pounds. I suppose one question, just to come back to your uh, point, Brooke, is... Is this really SME lending? It it feels, if it's a maximum loan of £10,000, it feels very much like a kind of sole trader, kind of, you know, micro business, yeah. really. Uh, it probably doesn't actually address the issue of SME kind of uh, supply and demand, I suspect. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a tiny little sector that's uh, yeah. maybe underserved, but it's not really... Uh, the and banks you no know, and actually we are we are business. seeing a number of alternative lenders try and come into the sort of invoice financing space where they'll you know we've seen some peer to peer groups try and address this and say you know they'll buy invoices from companies you know and take a fee so it's a similar sort of thing like it's just mopping up that short term need and i'm sure there are businesses out there that you know just can't survive because they can't get the money for a couple of weeks but it just seems like you know they might be going down the rabbit hole a little yeah. bit. And uh, um, it's definitely not a cycle you want to end up relying on because, you know, as well as the high interest rates and high arrangement fees, of course, the penalty fees are exorbitant and you start missing a weekly repayment and suddenly the costs spiral into, you know, way more than 100% a year. In a way, this is shadow banking writ small where we can all understand it. I mean, this is this is what happens when you have alternatives to bank lending. Will, will the eurozone spiral us into some new crisis where we are all using Wonga? Who knows? <laughs> that's it for this week. All that's left is to thank Patrick and Charlene and Daniel for their contribution and you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at www.ft.com/banking.
Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.